Hi, it's Dan here, and I wanted to let you know that this is a very special episode of the show. Some glimpses from my chats with four previous guests. You'll hear about 10 minutes of each guest's 60-plus minute conversation, which will give you a small idea of the many topics that we covered. Also, you can listen to the entire conversation at either linernotes.ca or on any podcast platforms. Just search for Liner Notes, revealing chats with Canada's retro music makers. Enjoy. Today, I'm very honoured to have as my special guest, Barry Muir, perhaps best known as the bass player for the iconic Canadian band, The Paolas, but was also a member of Barney Benton, and the Legendary Hearts, and the Blue Shadows of Billy Cowsill, as well as a prolific uh, solo artist. So you're originally from Saskatoon, though. You're a prairie boy. I am. Proud to yeah. be from Saskatoon. I mean, I grew up there. I went to high school there. And then uh, yeah. when I was 20 years old, I told my mom, I'm going to go to Vancouver and join Canada's next big rock band. And so I moved to wow. Vancouver and she said, good for you, son. Saskatoon was a phenomenal place. I mean, I don't want to age myself, but I mean, I grew up in the yeah. 70s, right? I mean, and yeah. Saskatoon had just this incredible music scene in the in the particular neighborhood I lived in called Avalon. I mean, on my street alone, I'd leave any given day and I'd hear drums across the street. I'd hear somebody playing a guitar down at the other end of the street. And um, yeah, I mean, it was just a very, you couldn't, you couldn't hide it. And uh, so I was reasonably athletic when I was quite young, but um, I just decided that the guitar was, uh, was for me and just started playing with, you know, my, my buddies and uh, man, we we were, we were actually making money when I was 12 years old. We were gigging. Wow. And uh, oh, that's great. Yeah, we started super young. What I'm always curious about too, and I've asked lots of different people this question, but you know, most people get into a band and they hack out a few tunes and they have some fun, but then most of them just go on to do other things. So what was your kind of defining moment? Was that when you decided to move to Vancouver, just said, I'm going to pursue this as a career? Oh yeah. No, I, I decided I was going to be a recording guitar player bassist so i actually when i was 20 years old or so i went to um little mountain sound just because that's where i read on the back of albums that you know some of my favorite albums were recorded there so i seeked out little mountain sound which is a very very good recording studio and being the naive youngster i was i just sat in the lobby and read billboard magazine and I didn't want to overstay my welcome, but two or three hours a day. So finally, on the third day, this fellow named John Vertasek, who is the actual studio designer, and he fixed everything mm-hmm. there. He's a great guy. He came over and he said, "You know, seeing you hanging around. What you know? What are you? What are you doing?" And I says, oh, "I was just hoping to meet some musicians." And he says, "Oh, you're a musician." Wow. And I said, "Yeah, of course." And he said, "Are you any good?" And I said, well, I like to think so. And he said, and he saw that, you know, I was fairly young. And, and uh, so anyway, he, he invited me to his house in North Vancouver mm. that night for dinner with him and him and his wife. I oh, guess he felt sorry wow. for me. And yeah. he said, bring your guitar and uh, let's hear what you can do. So I brought mm. my guitar. We had a great dinner and um, played him three or four songs. And he really liked them. And he, he actually wow. introduced me to... Um, Brian Adams and Bob Rock. And, you know, Bob uh, Rock was just learning to be a producer back then too, right? So um, he asked me a few times to come to the studio and bring my bass. And I brought my bass and a six-pack of beer and did it all for free, of course. So, you know, here's a guy, he puts down half-decent bass tracks, brings free beer, and doesn't ask (laughs) to get paid. So I was in. 
Yeah. You know, and then eventually I just started to um, just play on some, some of the groups that Bob was producing. And yeah. uh, one of the fellows was named Bob Coulter. And uh, our, mm-hmm. our Bob was just in the studio, I guess, but I met him through Bob. Bob Coulter was in the studio, I played on his EP. And uh, eventually I just ended up in the Payolas. You know, it was at the peak of their success. I mean, you know, it was just at that time in 1982 and uh, toured 130 American cities and just had a great time. So I I read here, though, that um, Bob was producing Barney Bentall. Is that right? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And that's how that's how that came about. Oh, yeah. Like Bob phoned me up one night and and said, uh, I need you down at the studio, Little Mountain. Right. And got this guy named Barney. I couldn't remember his laugh. But Barney, Barney, the only Barney I knew was like the purple dinosaur on TV. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But uh, so I went down, and um, lo and behold, it was all these guys that looked a lot like me: Jack Guppy and Colin Nairn and and Barney. Yeah. And uh, man, I just I fell in love with these guys because we just seemed to have so much in common, and yeah. just formed this real bond. And then uh, later, Cam Bowman joined the band. And we worked day and night on recording our demos and, you know, putting the band together in yeah, a package right. that we could sell to, you know, a major label. And that's exactly what we did. You guys went back and forth across Canada so many times. It just, the burnout sort of factored in. Yeah. Like we toured in uh, a van with the road crew and the band and somebody yeah. eating Doritos. And, but yeah, it was a nightmare. <laughs> and like, you know, classic, you know, some of the dumps we, uh, stayed in it was just unbelievable yeah. i could never do that now but back then yeah. it was fine to stay in a place where the carpet was literally covered in cigarette butts <laughs> and beer stains and vomit and well that's else. that's the rock and roll life right oh, and it's when you're young and you're you're trying to build your brand and you're trying to i mean and the record company of course wants you out there flogging the product right you got to yeah. go out and do shows yeah the good thing about so, the good thing about doing that with um, barney bentall and the legendary hearts in particular is we were such good friends and yeah, it just the cool. chemistry in that band was unbelievable in the payolas it was chaotic and oh, messed okay. up and the you know personalities clashed and yeah. it was uh it was a different experience altogether from one band to the next and then you mentioned the billy cowsell thing how did that come about i mean I, he was such an iconic figure and and uh you know such a well-known guy how did that come about well um that came about through Dave Chesney, who worked okay. for Sony Music. First of all, he worked for Epic and Columbia, and and yep. those were the guys that signed um, Barney Bentall and the Legendary Hearts. Right. And then when the Blue Shadows had some success with their first record, they wanted to, uh, I guess, beef up the band and go out on tour. So I got a call from Dave Chesney, and I'd never yeah, really heard of the Blue Shadows. I seem to be okay. the only person in Vancouver that wasn't really familiar with him. <laughs> but anyway, yeah. so Dave called me up Interesting. and he said, and at that time I was willing to do anything for Dave because he was such a, a profound person in my life with um, Barney Bentall and the Legendary Hearts. He was really like the guy, you know? But anyway, yeah, Dave um, phoned me up and said, I need you to go out on tour. He liked my demos for, for starters. In fact, he was talking about, let's make a record, Barry, with your demos. And, hmm. But first, I want you to go out on tour with the Blue Shadows for a couple of months to promote their new record. And yeah. I said, yeah, sure, that sounds great. And two months turned into three years. And then at the wow. end of the three years, 
the music business had changed so much that you know it was hard to convince anybody that my demos were worthy of a a Sony record contract who was ultimately in charge of of Epic and, and Columbia at the time. So just a little bit of history there. Mm-hmm. So the cow the cow sills had disbanded and just just for the context of people. So uh, Billy Cowsill ended up on the West Coast and put together a different project? Well, no, the West Coast project that Billy put together was the Blue Shadows. After the Blue Shadows, yeah. or, or are you talking about the Blue Northern project before the Blue Shadows? Uh, no, I was just asking about the Cowsills because that was the name of the band originally, was it not? Yeah, the Cowsills, the, the they were out of Rhode Island and yeah. they were ultimately... The Partridge family. I mean, Billy Cowsill yeah, yeah, was basically um, David Cassidy. <laughs> in right, the that's, what, that's what I'm getting at. Just the history yeah. of how that came about and then how he ended up out here with the Blue Shadows. Yeah, exactly. You described that as the most fulfilling musical years of your career. I mean, that that's saying a lot. In the Blue Shadows, the very first gig I did with them, I went, oh, this is what it's supposed to be like. <laughs> it just had this magic swing to it and... Yeah. I don't know. It's hard to put into words, but yeah, there was a lot of gigs yeah. we played where people would stand there with their jaw open. And, and what was it? Just the magical combination of the music and the lyrics and the, the vibe? I guess the confidence, I suppose, or the swagger on stage? The swagger on stage, the way they, the songs swung, but Billy and Jeff, their vocals were just incredible. Hmm. You know, I've never experienced that before. I mean, if, Okay. You know, they're as close to the Everly Brothers as I'll ever get. Today, I'm very honored to have as my guest, Brad Merritt, best known as bass player for the iconic Canadian band 5440. So thanks for joining me today, Brad. How are you? I'm just fine, and it's been my pleasure. We signed to Warner Brothers and did three records with them, and, and it kind, yeah. kind of took off from there. But even at that point, it's still quite tenuous. I mean, you know, while you're signed to a major label and, you know, you're selling records and you're touring in the van and all that kind of stuff, you're still not making a living at it. People don't yeah, realize that. Yeah, yeah. yeah, for sure. No, well, that's, and, and the thing is with you guys, I mean, uh, as I went through your timeline and your history and stuff, I mean, you guys paid your dues, right? When you first started out, like set the fire and, and yeah. broken pieces, like you did that broken pieces uh, video, that's black and white video. That looks like it was on the beach in Tawasin. Is that right? Uh, white Rock. Or, and white was, Rock. Okay. Yeah, yeah. 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 We also did another video for, for what to do now on that, yes. which actually, got a little bit of play on much music as it started, you know, in one of their independent shows. Yeah. Well, cause you guys came up at a time when videos were important, right? So obviously you didn't have the budget for, for some big videos, but you still had to, to do something. You had to get something together, right? Yeah. So, so that's right. We did, we recorded uh, set the fire in 1983 and yeah. then released it in January of 84 and spent, you know, the next kind of year and a half playing, you know, everywhere we could to promote that, which was, you know, kind of as far east as Winnipeg hmm. and as far south as Los Angeles. Yeah. Um, so, and that was kind of our, kind of the corridors, the two corridors that we worked. Yeah. Um, and, you know, we were getting not much attention in, in Canada from major labels, a lot of, you know, some very mean rejection letters. <laughs> oh yeah, of course. <laughs> and some, some very, very kind and, yeah. and supportive. Uh, but we were getting lots of interest in the United States, and so we kept on going down there and, until until we ended up signing with Warner yep. Brothers. So, well, how did that happen? Because, I mean, a lot of bands from Canada, you know, typically sign a Canadian record deal and don't go the other route. So your, yours cause was the opposite experience. 
Yeah, well, I mean, actually, we we recorded by many uh, major labels down there. Um, it was it was a far more aggressive record scene. Uh, right. You know, there was it was it was far more uh, competitive, right? Because Canada, we were, it was kind of a still a branch plant kind of way of looking at things, and you were trying to get something that was safe that had the potential to you know go into other markets. And we were far from that. I mean, we were mm. we we had no polish. <laughs> yeah. You know, and we came from kind of a punk rock, a post-punk, you know, whatever you want to call that new wave or whatever kind of background, independent yeah. music anyway. And uh, and they had a lot more time for that down there. They were signing bands that were kind of, you know, like us, you know. Yeah. And uh, so we actually had, we were set to go with uh, Capital, EMI, and uh, down there. And uh, what happened is it, it was actually nixed by the yeah. uh, the president of the Canadian company, and now we're going to sign those guys. <laughs> oh, interesting. So, yeah, so and then we've you know kind of moved around uh, to, to everyone else, and then finally Warner Brothers, you know, this, they, when they made that call up to Canada, that, you know, uh, WA said absolutely, they're great, we love yeah. them, let's do it, right? So, okay. so had so they seen happened. you? What was, was it from the videos, the recordings that you'd already done, or the live shows that you were? That yeah, you were they're. Doing? I mean, they were familiar with our stuff because, like I said, it was it, it had all gone out to. Uh, yeah you know, every record company in Canada. And like I said, we, we, we you, you, you start corresponding with the A&R people and other people yeah. in these companies. And a lot of them are say like, you know, keep us surprised of what you're doing. Right. It's like, yeah. we're, you know, and so those, those are the encouraging ones. And that's the kind of stuff that can keep you going, you know? Um, yeah. So, uh, although, you know, I got to say that I derived a lot of energy from the negative ones too. <laughs> oh yeah. Well, some guys frame them and put them on the wall. They put their rejection letters on the wall because it's a motivator, yeah. right? Yeah. So that's what, so yeah. So it worked both ways for us. I think I'm probably yeah. more that way and, and Neil needed more encouragement. <laughs> but again, you know, you guys had already elevated yourself to a certain status. You know, I talked to a manager one time and he said, well, you have to have something to manage. You have to show me what you've already done. Yeah. You know, yeah. it has to be somewhat substantial, like do some videos, do some recording, like pay your dues and then we'll see what yeah. we can do for you. And you guys certainly did that from looking at your timeline. Yeah, no, there's no question about that. And actually our manager got involved with us fairly early, hmm. uh, Alan Moy uh, and Keith Porteous, they, they were a partnership to start with. Right. Uh, and, uh, you know, Alan, uh, he actually was the producer uh, on uh, set the fire and he, he was into making kind of independent albums and he played in a, ver a variety of Vancouver kind of punk rock slash new wave bands, whatever you want to call them. So he helped us make this record, which we're, you know, extremely proud of. And, uh, you know, I think Keith convinced Alan, it's like, you know, he, he, you know, you got to take some responsibility for the success of this thing. Let's, yeah. let's, why don't we just manage these guys and, and see what we can do. And that's when we started to play, you know, into California. So then the other question I had is, you know, when you sign with a major label like that, especially in the U S I mean, that's a whole different world now, right? You're in a, you're in a different universe. Did you get assigned a producer? Did you, were you able to self-produce or co-produce? How did that yeah, work? So that's a good question. So, uh, you know, we, w w after we did set the fire, we, that was 84, we spent kind of the summer of 85 writing and then recording what would become the green, the green record. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, with uh, Baby Ran and I Go Blind and other songs. Yeah. And uh, so we had kind of lost energy on doing the whole independent thing. It's like, you know, we love what we do, but let's see if we can get somebody else involved so <laughs> we don't have to do all the work yes. as well as everything else that you have to do. Yeah. And uh, so when we signed to Warner Brothers uh, in the spring of 86, uh, we already had this thing recorded. 
and mixed. Um, yeah. And they said, yeah, we, we, we love the recording. We, we just, we think that it could use a remix. So we got to Dave Jordan to do it, who had just, he was uh, best known for engineering a bunch of great records. He did, you know, that Marky Moon by television and he did mm-hmm. uh, uh, Remain in Light by, by uh, Talking Heads. And, you know, mm-hmm. so he, he, he knew how to do this. You know, he'd worked with Brian Eno. And, yeah. and so he did this great, great mix and Neil flew down for the mixes. And so that's, that's essentially what it is. It's still okay. a very independent sounding record, yeah. but it's just got a, that kind of, you know, kind of sheen to it that, you know, that was happening at the time. Which is fair enough because they could have asked you to re-record it or assigned you a producer and really kind of turned the band inside out, right? Yeah, which is what they tried to do the next time. <laughs> yeah, well, there you go. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, uh, which we just we got Jordan to produce, and by that time he had already he produced he just produced the Beat Farmers record, and uh, he he was moving from engineering to producing, and okay. uh, yeah. and uh, so we had a relationship with him and. It was great. I mean, he, we learned a lot from him. You know, it's not my favorite yeah. sounding record that we ever did, but it certainly had, uh, you know, an, enough success to keep going. And the one thing about you guys, you have that straight ahead, sparse kind of good production sound, and you've managed to keep that fairly consistent. Like you kind of know what you want and you kind of get it and it's not overproduced. It's not synthetic sounding. Like you have that rootsy kind of sparse i don't know if i'm using the right words but yeah i, I totally get it it's it's it, yeah it's it, it is that i mean it's so you know and then this is we used to have these uh back in the early days uh you know keith and alan would, would host these little talks with the band you know and we called it kind of kind of rock rock uh you know rock school 101 kind of mm-hmm. thing and uh you know, he says, you part, part of the secret is, you know, you, you kind of have to embrace your limitations, right? Mm. <laughs> it's just like, yeah. And rather than sort of rail against it and try to make, you know, the 48 track, uh, you know, Tusk record or something, yeah. uh, you know, not, it, would, it would, wouldn't be good and it wouldn't be authentic. And so uh, I, I think we, we kind of uh, leaned into that uh, a lot. And, and then we knew that we were going to grow naturally as, as musicians and as a band. And things would evolve, and so we kind of had a, a faith in that. And yeah, I think you're right. I think this, the, the recordings kind of stand the test of time. I mean, they still are played, you know, on recurrent all over Canada, and you know, I Go Blinds played all over the world. And oh yeah, yeah. And it, it it's it still sounds good, right? It's yep. um, it's whereas you know other stuff, you know, it kind of goes in and out. You know, I mean, like the '80s can come back and then they can go away or whatever again or whatever the sound is of the day. But yeah, this kind of sounds like something which. Yeah. Well, that's, and you bring out the combination of the punk and the new wave and, and that, because some of those eighties records, like you can put them on and within 10 seconds, you know, almost to the year, what year that was recorded. Right. Yeah. And we, and we bounced, we bounced around a little bit. I think we became, you know, less enthralled with the new technology as things went on. And, and, uh, you know, by the time we got around to since when, you know, it was a very, uh, natural, organic, thing you know where it's we're trying we're we're fooling around with kind of retro timeless sounds you know and the other thing we do creatively is that we tend to react to what we just did you know so we're kind of you know so even though we're forging our own path and we have this you know we have this kind of natural sound that we do we oscillate back and forth between you know the extremes within those limitations and i think that served us well too Drew Arnott is uh, perhaps best known as the vocalist, keyboard player, and songwriter for the popular 80s band Strange Advance. 
I fell in love with uh, Prague rock. I fell in love with, uh, you know, the early Genesis, yes, Pink Floyd, uh, you know, that, that kind of uh, uh, group. Yeah. And they employed uh, an instrument called the Mellotron, uh, which was an analog sampler. It, they had samples of string sounds or any orchestral sounds you wanted on tape. And you would hit a key and it would play back the tape. So yeah. you could play a number of keys and play a little melody. And, uh, and I love the sound of it because I've always loved a big orchestral sound. Mm-hmm. I loved symphonies. And um, so this was like, you know, you got to sound like a symphony all by yourself. And when I graduated high school, uh, my very supportive parents lent me a couple thousand dollars to go to London and buy a Mellotron. And, and you know, I can re- still remember walking into the music store. That was the first thing I did when I got to London. It's like, where, are, where is one of these beasts? You know, I want to see one up close. Yeah. So I went to a music store and he said, oh, do you want to try it? It's like, sure. So he handed me a set of headphones and plugged it in. And, you know, and I knew like two chords. But just putting your hand on the keyboard and hearing that same sound that all these bands that I loved, you know, had the same same sound going on it was just uh mind-blowing and and you know i had tears in my eyes i was just so thrilled with the sound of it it's like oh you're kidding i can create that myself so that was the beginning of me um starting to play keyboards and and uh, full confession i i'm not really you know a keyboard player i i i I play one on tv (laughs) but uh you know it's like uh, i use i use keyboards and guitar to write songs yeah. You know, I write the parts and, and if it takes me a dozen times to, to get things right, it doesn't matter. You're in the studio and, and I've always had home recording gear and stuff. So it wasn't cost me a fortune. So right. I ended up uh, playing keyboards just as a means of, of getting musical ideas out. I guess people that younger people don't realize how exciting that was when you heard about, you know, the Fairlights and the, the Mellotrons and the first synthesizers, the Poly 6s and stuff. That was a big deal. It was right? huge huge because like up to that point you know you actually had to be a player to sit down at a at a Rhodes or a Wurlitzer or whatever you couldn't fake it you know you had to mm-hmm. play something and and when synthesizers came out all of a sudden you know with one finger you could sound like god you know yeah. and yeah. Uh, and it opened up doors for people and and i think it's one of the real big reasons why 80s music was so inspired and so, uh, so many great songs came out of the 80s because all of a sudden, the barriers to entry had been lowered. You know, mm-hmm. anybody could get keyboards and samplers and whatever and then let their ideas out. And turns out, a lot of those people had great ideas, you know. We started a band up and uh, we were called Slan and we played you know, all the clubs and all your typical high schools and community centers and whatever. But then I ended up like, uh, it wasn't working. And, um, and so I left Slam and, and I got into doing lights uh, for a group called Sweeney Todd. I don't know if you're old enough to remember them. Well, of course I am. Yeah. yeah. No, I was, I was around that, that whole time. Yeah. Yeah. So, cause I always loved lights and when we played clubs and stuff, I'd be the one setting up the lights and, you know, oh, cool. getting everything, you know, sort of together and whatever. So I ended up doing lights for Sweeney Todd and then I, I did sound and lights for different bands for, you know, a number of years. Yeah. And, and I had one instance, uh, you know, there's like maybe been two or three of these times in my life where, 
like sliding doors or, or you know, the movie uh, where it's like, okay, if you make a decision, your life is going to change. Hmm. And when I was uh, in my mid-20s, early 20s or something, um, I was on holiday in Scotland. And uh, I had actually, a, a couple months before that, I had written my first song. And I didn't know um, what to write about or whatever. So I picked up a Scottish newspaper at home and uh, and read about this band. It had the number one song. It was called Forever and Ever. And I thought, okay, I'm going to write a song called Forever and Ever. Hmm. And then when I got to Scotland, I thought, oh, I wonder what their, ver- their Forever and Ever sounds like. So I went out and I bought the album and, and I, I was quite impressed. And then um, I'm in a music store and I see a sign on, a, on their notice board uh, that this band, Slick, S-L-I-K, um, were looking for someone to do lights for them. Oh. And it was like, oh, that's interesting. So I called them up and I said, well, you know, that's interesting because I do lights for the, a band in Canada and they had the number one song in the country at the time, Roxy Roller. Yeah. And you guys have got the number one song in the UK. So anyway, I got hired. Well, it was the lead singer and manager that hired me. And the lead singer was Midgeur, of course, who went on to join Ultravox and, and write Do They Know It's Christmas and all that kind of stuff. So it was very interesting. And, and so I, I like to say that, yes, I worked for Midgeur <laughs> for one day because that's how long it took me to find out how much they were going to pay me, yeah. which was a pittance. It was like, yeah. you know, you're going to make, you know, 20 quid a week or something. It's like, uh, that this yeah. is going to cover anything. So I never took up, took them up on the job. I had to quit the next day. But anyway, that was, uh, you know, if I had gone that route, you know, what would my life look like today? So that you were on holiday, though, you ended up back in Canada, right? Oh, yeah. Came back home yeah. and, and so. carried on. And what happened was, uh, you know, I, I basically, I, I've always had recording gear at home, as I was saying. And, and I, I'd met another guy who was in the same situation. He had gear at home as well. And we decided we would build and run uh, a, a legit recording studio. Okay. So for the next year, year and a half, that was us in construction mode and, and uh, putting a business plan together and getting a big bank loan and all that kind of stuff. And so that's when, um, you know, Daryl and I thought, okay, well, we've got a studio. We, you know, we can record demos. And, and that's when, uh, and he at the, at the same time was off. Uh, touring with Brian Adams hmm. uh, for Brian's first Canadian tour. Okay, and and all uh, credit goes to Brian Adams because he liked our demos and asked if he could give the the demo to Bruce Fairburn, the producer, and uh, and he did that, and that's what uh, erupted yeah. into a record deal for us. Well, awesome. Yeah, it's funny. I was going to ask you that exact thing. I was trying to make the connection. How did you end up with a, a record deal, I guess, with Capitol Records? And, and then so one day you're you're just sort of doing some demos. The next day you're, you're down with Bruce Fairburn at Little Mountain Sound doing a, like a serious album. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it was it was a really remarkable time. And and also because it was like such a huge leap between, you know, us working in our basements or later my studio and then all of a sudden, you know, we've got a big ass record deal with, you know, Capitol Records, Los Angeles and and uh, and all that kind of stuff. And and it basically it took like maybe two years hmm. before I could accept it, because like up to that point, I was like, oh, 
someone's made a terrible mistake. <laughs> I'm sure they meant to sign some other band or, or whatever. Really? You know, the imposter syndrome, right? Yeah. You just think, oh, no, no, they're, they're going to catch us. You know, they're yeah. going to discover. It's like, we, we signed you guys? No, no, that, that was wrong. Yeah. But yeah, it was awesome working with Bruce. Uh, he was a fantastic producer, and uh, I learned a lot from him. And Bob and, Rock, uh, Bob Rock was there too, right? Oh Engineer. my God! Our our first album was just remarkable. We had uh, Dave the Rave, who of course uh, worked out of Mushroom, and uh, and went on to do you know all his work with Skinny Puppy and 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 with Nine Inch Nails and all those you know heavier bands and stuff. And uh, and we had uh, Mike Fraser was yep. the assistant engineer, who's gone on to be you know become a huge engineer producer. Yep. And Bob Rock was the engineer, and Bruce was it was the all star team. I'll tell you the song oh, yeah. Prisoner. Well, that was a song that was on our first album. Yeah, and it was a controversial song at the time. We didn't want to put it on the record because we thought stylistically it doesn't really fit with anything else. But uh, but Bruce was always. Uh, you know, involved in, you know, obviously Prism and, and Loverboy and, and bands like, you know, sort of, you know, regular straight ahead. Yeah. Rocking, rocking yeah. guys. And we were like a little esoteric and weird. Yeah. And um, so, so Prisoner was kind of like, it could have been on a Loverboy album or something. That's what I thought. Movie. Yeah. When I listened to it, I thought it's more of a straight ahead tune. It wasn't so new wave ish. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So we argued, but you know, we were young and, uh, and talked into it. I, I mean, it's a good song. I don't have. I, I like it. Song. You know, I just yeah. was. What I was curious about was was that before the album came out or after? Because I was wondered if that was part of your record deal process, or you know, you it would... wasn't part of the process. Uh, it, it sort of got slid in there three quarters of the way through. Okay, I was wondering too. Are we, were you more of a studio band or a live band? Because you weren't. Oh, hundred percent a studio band. Yeah. So when you know, you're we, doing... we didn't play any gigs till after the, the second album. Today, I'm very honored to have as my special guest recording artist, producer Paul Andrew Smith, uh, best known as a member of the successful 70s band Wednesday. You're from Britain originally. Originally, yeah. Yeah, and you uh, you were in bands over there, so you came here as a young adult or a, or a teenager? Yeah, I was a teenager. I was playing in uh, a few bands in England for about three years, and uh, then I came here in 67. And what was the reason for the move? Was it with your parents? My parents had come before me, and I stayed there to uh, finish at school. Um, and then I came over here. And you know, it was an interesting story that uh, how how Wednesday, how the seed for Wednesday came about was. This was my second day in Canada, hmm. and I'm sitting at home just strumming on my guitar. And there's a knock on the door. And I answered the door, and there's three guys standing there. One guy was carrying drum equipment, and and the other guy said, uh, oh, I just met your parents down the street. They said, you've just arrived and uh, that you play guitar. <laughs> and that person was Randy, the drummer. Wow. And from then on, we just went off, and we, uh, as everybody was doing in those days, jamming in basements and garages oh, and yeah. stuff, and, and that became Wednesday. Well, we first started when we got together. Uh, we we're playing, uh, you know, your typical drop-in centers, and uh, you know the the park openings and all that kind of thing. And we we found that we were busy then, and there was enough work for us around the local area, and um, we weren't making a great big 
ton of money then, but that sort of uh, extended into uh, doing the club series and doing bars. And right. we, you know, we did the, the whole thing, same as people like Rush and Triumph and Grotto. We were all doing the, uh, the gas works, the Piccadilly Tube, the, you know, the Abbey Road Pub. Yeah. We're just doing the whole circuit around Ontario. And, and when that started, we were working every week, so we knew that we could survive money-wise. It was uh, that yeah. was sort of the turning point. And then, as soon as we started recording, it sort of just went from there. We were lucky, you know. Yeah. Uh, I don't think it's a thing you plan out. We were in the right place at the right time. We had the right song, and it all yeah. fell in place. What's so remarkable about you guys and and reading through your history? I mean, you were you were just another of a whole maze of bands, and there was lots of bands. And then you came up and and you got well a number one Canadian hit, but you got you got a Billboard hit too. Like yeah, you were thirty four on U.S. Billboard. I mean, that's pretty remarkable to be able to do that. Like you did something that most Canadian bands have never been able to do, like crack the, the U.S. market, and you did it quickly. Yeah, it was a little bit of a surprise, and and it was it was a long time afterwards. I found out that it wasn't just there. It was um, uh, Australia did really well too. Yeah, I was actually just talking with Dave Charles, who was uh, Chum DJ uh, Q107, and uh, he he told me something that I didn't know before, and he said, you know, I was the one that suggested that you that you guys do that, do Last oh. Kiss. Oh wow! And I thought, wow, I didn't know that. And he said yeah. that he he uh, was surprised. He thought we should do it, but he said it was such a huge hit. He, he couldn't believe yeah. it. Well, it's funny because I I do shows and I sing Last Kiss quite often, and I always Ooh. talk about you know Frank Wilson and the Cavaliers did it, Jay Frank Wilson, right. and and then you did it for sort of my generation because I was in high school in the seventies, right. so that was kind of our version of it. And then my daughter was singing it, and Pearl Jam had redone it right. in the nineties. Right, Pearl Jam. I think Eddie was at some sort of a yard sale or something, and he found the record and he really liked it because mm. he heard it on the radio, and. Yeah. It, it became uh, something that he really loved, and he knew our version, and uh, they just sort of jammed it one day, and then it became uh, something that they wanted to, to release. And then you had the follow-up single, Teen Angel, you recorded that, and I remember that as well, mm -hmm. because those those were our parents' songs, basically, right. from, my, from my age, right? That's right. I think the idea there was um, our record company was thinking, well, if, if, this, if Last Kiss did well, We've got to continue in that vein. Yeah. And so they were looking for other songs in the same sort of genre, and uh, they did well too. We didn't mention the KTEL series. Right. They, they picked us up for, I don't know, probably six, seven, eight KTEL albums. Wow. And uh, when you start researching, when I sort of browse through the, the web looking for stuff, we've been on disco albums. We've mm -hmm. been on an album with um, Ringo Starr and uh, the DeFranco family. I don't know how they pick these things out, but there's been Latin albums that have included one of our, our tunes. Wow. I don't know how, how it, but they pop so up. So the other thing that struck me, you're doing cover songs, so you don't get song royalties for the songs that you recorded, right? So how did you navigate through that? Well, you know, the uh, government set up the uh, Canadian content ruling. I think that was in early 70s. 
and it's divided up. So you, you've got your um, production, your music, your lyrics, etc. So even if we're doing somebody else's song, we don't get the, the lyrics and the music, uh, but we share in the production and the musicians. Yeah. So of the maple, like the four, you the had two, system. and you have to have two, right? Just for people who don't know what that is, to, to determine what Canadian content is, they had MAPL, and that, that would be on the albums. And to be considered Canadian content, I believe you had to have two of the four. Yeah, and see, the, the so, thing about that was another reason why music in the 70s for Canadian bands sort of flourished, because the yeah. government were saying, hey, you know, we should play our Canadian music more. So obviously you were in favor of that. Of course. But the point I was making about the record deals, if you're not if you're not a songwriter, you're not getting royalties from the songwriting. No. So you would have had to play live shows to make money, right? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I and, don't think unless you know, you, you unless you're selling billions of records, you would have to uh, you know, keep touring, keep playing, and that's where your bread and butter comes from. And then so you did uh, an Elton John cover too, you did Loving You Baby in seventy five. Yes. And, and that did well for you in Canada. And I'm mm-hmm. always curious, why, why do you choose those particular songs? Like, were they in your set when you played or did somebody come up and say, I mean, you, someone suggested Last Kiss, but the other ones. Usually our producer would come up with songs. They would give us, um, you know, like a, a tape of something and say, what do you think of these songs? And yeah. that was presented to us and uh, we worked it up. We uh we were about to record it, and we were at a meeting um, at our producer's office, and we were discussing Loving You. And uh, we, I think it was originally called I've, uh, I've Been Loving You. Hmm. And, and Johnny says, well, let's call it Loving You, Baby. And we said, well, how, how do you just do that? How do you just change the title of the song? He said, well, we'll ask Elton. And we said, well, okay. He says, well, come downstairs. They're rehearsing downstairs. It was in uh, Eastern, Eastern Sound. So we went downstairs and into this hallway, and they were taking a break. And they're all sitting in the hallway, on the floor in the hallway. So we had to step over Elton <laughs> and say, uh, you know, we want to record this song. Do you mind if we change the title? And, and there's an interesting story about that, that uh, it was one of the first songs that he took to the publishing companies, uh, having written it himself without Bernie. Right. And um, the guy says, no, you've got to record it. You're the right person to do this. So he released it, and it sort of flopped. It didn't really take off. So they took it off the market really quick. Oh, interesting. So we actually sold a few more than he did. (laughs) Yeah, well, it's it's funny that you should say that because I didn't remember that song from Elton John. No, because it was it was short lived. And and then because um, you did that here today, gone tomorrow too, which yep. is really really nice. That's a nice I mean, song. Yeah. Really uh, good. I, think... I mean the way the way you did it, the harmonies are beautiful. It's almost Beatles ish. Yeah, if I may say, but uh, yeah, it's got a little bit of a different beat to uh, most of the other material. Yeah, and then. I have to ask you about the name change. Like you, you changed the spelling of it. Why, why was that? No idea. <laughs> no, because it was, when it was an, it was an hour. I think it was a record company decided that that might be something we should do. I, hmm. I, 
I think it was a wrong choice. Um, yeah. I don't know why it was done originally. Thanks for checking out these short bits from my much longer conversations with previous Liner Notes guests. Don't forget you can listen to each full interview at either linernotes.ca or on any podcast platforms. Just search for Liner Notes, revealing chats with Canada's retro music makers. Until next time, I'm Dan Hare.